This is not your mother's middle age. No longer is waking up each day, living the wash, rinse, and repeat cycle acceptable. We have the life lessons, the relationships, the wins, and the losses with which to navigate to our highest self without hesitation and without fear leading the way. We have been there and done that, and so we have so much to offer the world and each other. So join me on this journey speaking to ordinary women doing extraordinary things for new insights, new ideas, new medical breakthroughs, and new life lessons. You will be inspired to find your best life here and now. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire, and this is your Second Wind Podcast. Today on Second Wind, I have the privilege to have Dr. Rachel Allen on. Uh, We were introduced by my brother a year ago. His best friend, Pete, is friends with Rachel. And she, he said, this is somebody you need to have on your podcast. And boy, was he right. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Rachel. She is a holistic psychologist, a writer, a retreat leader, a pleasure expert, working as a freedom fighter to help you subvert anything that keeps your mind, body, and spirit from shining bright. She has written a book. I mean, she's done a lot of things, but the most recent thing is this book called The Pleasure is All Yours. I'm listening to it for a second time. I just told her I've listened to the introduction probably five times. I am purchasing said book for all the younger women in my life thinking, wow, they're going to get this information 30 years before I did. And wow, I wonder how this could have helped my evolution as a woman and as a partner and as a being evolve better had I had this information way back when. She's a TED Talk speaker and is moving forward. Like This is not just her second wind. She's on to the third, fourth, and fifth, and always making the next stride to help us create this movement for women. And I'm so appreciative of your help and your time today. So thank you, Dr. Rachel, for joining us on Second Wind. Thank you for having me, Wendy. Yeah, that wow, quite an introduction. I'm like, is she talking about me? Oh, I am. <laughs> and I just kind of, that's a little more than I said I would say, but it just kind of came to me. And I mean, I have some notes and every time I listen to your book, I pull something else out that's just makes Mm. you go, oh, it's like the boom, the light bulb goes off every time I I hear something different. Yeah. And you're not the first person to tell me that. I've had some others say that they've had a, they're on their second round and are pulling out new threads and new ahas. It's so true. So we're going to have you on again for the, the second wind sex after 50 kind for women. I don't really know the title yet, but I'm already compiling people to come and talk to us second winders about sex and the topics around sex and our, I don't want to call it aging. It's aging, but our, our accumulation of wisdom and years. Seasoned or vintage. Seasoned. Vintage, yes. And how we can really thrive in that because there seems to be stuff, so much stuff. And let's face it that after 50, women are really rendered invisible 
Mm. especially when it comes to their embodiment and sexual health and reproductive health and just how they shine still beyond 50. It's they're ignored. (laughs) How many women have you heard say, gosh, I hit 50 and everything started sagging or I hit 50 and I gained 10 pounds, right? Well, there's yeah changes to the body along those lines as well that people don't talk about or aren't prepared for or feel alone in. So we really have to start with education and conversation and normalizing and and also finding the beauty and seeing the glorious aspects of it as well and letting that shine. Yes, because I really think that 50 and above is where we shine. Hence the second wind whole thing. Anyway, (laughs) well, let's start with what we discussed would be what brought you to this book, that, that thing that brought you to writing everything. Well, I think that I wrote the book that I wanted and needed to read longer ago. (laughs) So I wrote it, you know, selfishly, maybe for the me's out there. But then I also wrote it wanting to have it really appeal to anybody who's dealt with body marginalization, whether it be because Mm -hmm. they were told that they needed to elevate their mind over their body, or they were, and or they were told that their body's natural desires were bad or wrong. And so the confusion that caused, the shame that caused, the disconnection from the body that caused. So it certainly this is going to appeal to some people more than others, but I really thought of it as something for all humans that grew up in this repressed country Mm. of the United States. (laughs) Yeah. And you talk about that in your book that we really have a disconnect in the U S that's unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We took the mind and put it over here and took the body and put it over here and the disconnection and everything I'm learning now that I have Lyme is that disconnection makes us sick. And you talk about that a lot in the book. Yes, yes. The moments of dis-ease can turn into disease over time if we don't tend to ourselves and care for ourselves and not only individually, but the collective care. Because that first section of the book is sort of my sociological self, which really looks at the systems, the systemic problems that cause us to not be embodied in in a joyful, pleasurable, intimate way with ourselves and others. So there's, yeah, that element of the United States being one of the most repressed countries in the world. I was shocked when I heard that because one might think, well, come on, we're more enlightened than that. I think we just have a really kind of all or nothing approach with our bodies and sexuality. Either there's kind of a lot of exploiting and objectifying of bodies, usually women's, or there's messages to just don't talk about it don't reveal, don't show, don't express desire. So we're sort of all or nothing. We don't really have that middle path of healthy, mature conversations and approaches and recognizing the nuances, both the power and the problems of of how we've approached our sexual health and our bodies. So that should have been a book, maybe all its own. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, you, you address it and you do a really good job at addressing it. So you... Let's talk about Dr. Rachel Allen and how you grew up and how this all came to be. Yeah, gosh. Well, just this girl in the Midwest um, with both of my parents were very different, you know, almost opposites. Uh, I like to think that my dad really encouraged the athlete in me. So that body connection that to this day is 
movement is my medicine. Right. Uh, And then my mom really was just so natural and open about issues related to the reproductive body. I I don't, and I don't really know where she got that. She was a bit of an orphan who sort of bounced around relative to relative in different parts of the country. So I don't know if there's something about that, that led her to have different perspectives and maybe then come up with sort of her own. And, but she gave me all the books, me and my sister got all the books of what's happening to my body and all, you know, just naturally would just talk about things in an age appropriate way about relationships. And I remember she even said how you could love more than one person. So she was maybe wow generous before anybody used the word. And she had a yeah a period party for me and my sister when we each first menstruated. We got our presents. We had our favorite <laughs> meal, <laughs> which my dad was supportive of, but not really the instigator of, but he was, he's, he's certainly, I don't want to make him sound like he's anti any of this, but just he would, he should let, let my mom take the lead. And I've joked, I think I mentioned in my TEDx talk too, how in second grade, when we were talking about where babies come, came from, and I, I said the uterus and, and the teacher and all the kids looked at me like, how, how does the second grader? Because it's the stork. It's the mommy's tummy. That's what we're told. Interesting. Yeah, so I just was taught things in sort of a, um, a straightforward way. And it really wasn't until I was older and, and I started to notice I was different from other kids. And then, and just with life circumstances led me to question, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe I came from a weird family and I'm the problem. But then I, I really came back around to the fact that, no, I, I feel really fortunate that I don't have some of the same hangups around these topics. And so I want to be a leader and help serve and facilitate others having more love and joy and acceptance for their own bodies. Is that what you mean by different that you were aware or more forthcoming, more expressive? And then that kind of puts you off as different from everyone you were around. Yeah. Just a little bit here or there. I just felt like, Oh, you're not supposed to talk about that sort of stuff or bring that up. And, And quite honestly, to this day, it still happens. I mean, there are it, in new really? and different ways. I still come across people who, who don't know what to do with me and my openness. And, you know, I'm talking about a, a topic they were told you're not supposed to talk about. So I make, I can make people feel uncomfortable. I can, right. um, I'm too confrontational for them. And it, so it took me a long time to actually really name myself as a psychologist who also specializes in issues around intimacy and sexual health. But just because I, I, the backlash, the pushback, you know, I'm not the kind of woman who's supposed to be doing that, that kind of work. It's, I don't know, for male researchers at the Kinsey Institute. Yeah. It's all the male researchers that are telling the women how to feel and what, what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. Which is interesting also, but you didn't actually set out to be on this path. You were a, a TV investigator. <laughs> yeah, I had a few years there where I was trying to be a TV news reporter. Yeah. And it was fun. I had a great time. Um I mean, you were doing it. It wasn't like you were trying to do it. You were actually doing it. Well, I was actually production assistant and so I was more in the producing side and uh-huh. I got opportunities to sort of practice with the TV crew being on air to make my resume tape. Back then it was a literally a VHS tape you would send to news directors around the US to get your reporting job. So I was more in the production assistant side, really, for the most part. But then I would get out there and practice and do my stories. And I think what's 
why that's connected to the work I do now. It is about yeah. human beings doing why they do what they do and telling a story and sharing stories about yeah, different things going on in the world. But yeah, I end up giving that up once I realized I'd have to move to middle of nowhere, small town to get my start. <laughs> to start. But you also told me that you were kind of dismayed at the sensationalism of different things rather than you wanted to get to the heart of the matter. Mm-hmm. And that just wasn't what people really wanted you to do. And that wasn't driving yeah. the stories. It was the sensationalism of it. Yeah, you wanted that, to go deeper even back then. Yes. I wanted, I think I really should have stuck with trying to do more investigative journalism, but I was working in TV news stations, really wonderful people, but the nature of local TV news is a little bit, can be a lot of fear-based or infotainment or, you know, two minutes here or there. So you're not really going as deep. Yes. I tried some other things there for a while before landing on psychotherapy and being a psychologist. So tell us a little bit about that, you know, how you got to where you are now. Well, I was not even a psychology major in college. So I decided uh, after those years doing TV news, I decided to take a couple psychology classes and I worked at really it's a world famous study at the University of Minnesota uh, looking at twins raised together and raised apart. And so I got to do research experience there. I got clinical experience working at different reproductive health care clinics and doing peer education, or even just things like when somebody would come in to get their tests for SDI tests, I'd give results, things like that, just being able to talk with people. And so that gave me a sense of what it could be like. Do I want to go into research? Do I want to go into more clinical work? And then somebody said, if you get your PhD, you're going to have the most options. If you want to teach, if you want to do consulting, if you want to write a book, if you want to work with clients, it, it just opens you up to really anything within the field, which is great because it's true. I do a lot of different things within my psychology license and degree. But then it wasn't, it was right at the end of getting my PhD that apparently I, uh, I got my PhD and apparently I just needed to be a student. I couldn't stop being a student. So even though I was working full-time, I had to join my yoga teacher training and get my certification for that. And that Why is- yoga? Why <laughs> yoga though? Well, that wasn't, again, my mom's influence. And I had always been doing it as cross-training or to just chill out a little bit when I was stressed. And then, and then I started- You were a skier, right? Yes. Yes. That's how me and Pete know each other through that cross-country ski world. Which is a huge, taxing, really difficult sport. It's fairly grueling. I mean, it can be also peaceful and rhythmic and lovely. But when you think of like the racing side of it, yeah, you're out there in some pretty brutal conditions for long periods of time. And your cardiovascular state is got to be top notch. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's an extreme. I think that's kind of up there with extreme athletic choices. So yeah, the yoga was a great compliment to that, I would bet. Yeah. And I decided to do my yoga teacher training in part because I really felt there's something here about this mind-body connection. And I want to understand more and dive more deeply into what's happening here. And that training helped to begin to give me the language to describe something that is hard to describe. These felt sense experiences, these visceral experiences that we tend to not have a language for. It is the language mm-hmm. of the body. And it's always working together with the language of our mind, but it is 
because of the way the body's been denigrated and marginalized and we've feared it historically, we don't really know how to understand what's happening in our body. So that was part of what was helpful for me with that training was to really formally bring it in to my work with clients and to become known as somebody who was a somatic psychologist. So mind-body psychologist. Did you have like, I've done some yoga and there's been times when I've been in there and I just wanted to cry. The teacher afterwards, I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. I just feel like I needed to cry and, and I don't know what happened. And she goes, oh, that's a release. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, that's really interesting. You just think you're doing the pose. You're just trying to hold it together. <laughs> you don't realize that there's other things happening. Did you have like a moment in it? Do you remember any kind of moment in yoga that affected you so greatly? Yeah, I've had and continue to have moments, but I'm trying to think of the ones that were the greatest. Probably when I was going through the early stages of my divorce was when I really clung, clung to yoga as this like life preserver, I guess, to keep me afloat. And it was a safe space, especially when the lights were low. I was sort of just in there in this dark candlelit space Mm -hmm. uh, that I was able to release and discharge some of that grief. So yeah, I mean, I think it really shows how our issues live in our tissues. And I love that we're in the right environment and space to let that connective tissue release the tears, the sweat, the sighing, all that those really healthy discharges happen. Things that we were told we should button up and keep in are actually Mm. really important and healthy to release. That is what prevents the disease. You're a believer that our cells kind of hold on to all of our issues and our body keeps the score basically of everything that has not gone so great for us in a detrimental way to our health. Yeah. Our our body really keeps a record of, of all things also the pleasant and lovely and the, but it can hang on more to the things that had threat or trauma because it wants to protect us and ensure that it doesn't happen again. And a lot of times in the face of stress and trauma, we maybe didn't have options for completing our nervous system cycle to get back to safety. And so that's where it's almost like this frozen residue that gets caught in our body. And it's expressed through reactivity, nervous system reactivity. There's a saying that if it's historical, it's hysterical. So there's this history that our body carries. So for example, maybe somebody says something and you react in a way that's somewhat disproportionate to what they said. Mm. That could be a sign that it's probably because it was familiar or similar to some past trauma that you're reacting to in a way that it's loaded. We're loaded bringing that past up again. I think it's an amazing pioneering time right now in which there's a lot of research and practical applications of looking at trauma and how it's held in the body and how alternate therapies beyond talking can help really release the old stuck trauma in the body. Which I love that you bring that in because think about it. When dogs, animals have an immediate release after some kind of a trauma or event or a fight or flight kind of situation, you know, dogs will shake, ducks do some kind of weird thing with their their wings. (laughs) And we as humans, we just gulp, swallow, and get yeah, back. Grit get our back teeth. Yeah. So you figured this out. And how do you apply that to your clients? How did you get into that role? 
I've been like, how do you sell that to people? Right. It's been confusing to explain what I do. And I think it, it keeps evolving. In the beginning, I, I really just said I was doing yoga psychotherapy. And now it's expanded since 15 years ago when I was saying that to, I say somatic, just because that includes all things beyond just yogic tradition and philosophy. Plus yoga can be a divisive word for some people. They love it. Some people, they associate it with the last thing they want to, right. But if you talk about just sort of embodiment, that's people can get on board with that. And that's really what a lot of what I'm doing is weaving in with my clients, talking and inviting the body into the conversation. My initial sessions look really traditional though, because I need people to, I need to get to know them. I want them to Mm -hmm. trust me because once you do get into the body, it's very vulnerable. I mean, just even just a touch, somebody can put kind of their, a light touch on somebody's shoulder and that can be triggering for some people. And in, you know, there can be those deep emotional releases, like what you talked about in yoga. And I never want to thrust that on people because yeah, trauma can be overwhelming. I never want to re-traumatize people. So there is an art and a craft to being a somatic psychologist and dealing with, with traumas of different kinds and not re-traumatizing people. So what kinds of issues would you say that you see come to you? Well, because I name my specialty areas are really relationship issues is probably the main thing, but then also depression and anxiety and life transitions. So that then you open that up to really a whole, whole lot of stuff. I work with adults, well, older adolescents. Um, I love actually working with adolescents as well. So about 15 and up, but there's, you know, and a lot of family of origin sorts of issues and trauma. So trauma There's a lot of different types of traumas, but probably the main one that I work with is relational. So it can have to do with attachment issues or abandonment issues, Mm. inconsistent caregiving or a breach or um, neglect in the caregiving or confusion. A lot of things related to personality disorders, such as narcissism and antisocial personality. So uh, I think that's what we also realize now that that can be those emotional manipulation and inconsistencies in caregiving can have, leave their own scars. It doesn't need to just be a, a, you know, a bruise or some of those other signs of trauma, but the emotional abuse from caregivers or inconsistencies from caregivers. That's incredible. There's so much to that. I mean, you're talking about everybody. Really. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Every single person yeah. can find something that is not what they would like it to be or has done something that has created something within them. Part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. Human condition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you're doing this work. It's evolved. So what makes you write the book? (laughs) It's not. Writing a book is tough. Right. And I was, I had a full-time private practice because it was more full than ever given the pandemic. So I think that. Oh, really? The pandemic did something? Hold on. Before we go to that question, let's talk about the pandemic and what that may or may not have done for your business and what you were doing. Because you do talk about that in the book, the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I finished, I had started it before the pandemic years before, but then I did sort of real bulk of it that a lot of the heavy lifting during those first year of it. But initially, it was interesting. Initially, first few weeks, my schedule was lighter because some people had lost their jobs. Some people were just Mm -hmm. frozen. They were stuck or paralyzed, or they just were sort of hunkering down at home and going with it. People 
it was a little bit less busy actually. But then after starting about six weeks in, it just started, it's been picking up and picking up. And this, as we enter into year, we've been in year two, I've been busier than ever. My colleagues have been busier than ever. I, I'm at the point where I, I can't refer people to my colleagues because they're all so full and there's burnout among our field, just as there oh, is wow. a lot of people. So it has, I mean, it emboldens me to do what I do all the more. And yet <laughs> I have had to accept my limits. And so trying to have a full-time practice and write the book, I think if, when I write my next book, I won't probably won't do that just because <laughs> I need some work-life balance. Well, well I, yeah, I you're do. into the work-life balance for sure. I'm all about that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it was so I would be on my computer all morning writing and then on my computer for clients, you know, throughout the rest of the day. The irony is I was talking in the book about getting away from the screen and getting out out of the chair. And yet I was being a hypocrite during there's a good 10 months there where I had to be a bit of a hypocrite. But you you were honest about it. Yeah, you're so blatantly honest about everything, which is so (laughs) great about your book. How did the pandemic affect you as a person in your journey? Well, you know what? It's actually really hitting me these last handful of months. The book came out four months ago. Uh And what I realized is that I really compartmentalized for that pretty much when it hit in March up until last really beginning of August, because I just felt, A, I have to be there for my clients. B, I have to focus on getting this book sole project out into the world. And so I, I was consciously aware I was doing it, but I really compartmentalized. And even the mm. stuff happening r- related to George Floyd being murdered in my home city, I was in LA at the time, but I really paid attention, of course, to what was going on in the news. But I, mm. I also really just was in hiding in a lot of ways, just head down, getting the book done and really focusing on my clients and how I could have energy for them. And But what's interesting is Literally the week after the book came out, I had, it's like a postpartum depression sort of phenomenon. I had to deal with also my mom had passed away, all the things that were going on in Minneapolis and with just racial injustice issues, the really confronting what the pandemic meant for me and my family and friends. So it's all really been hitting me these last few months. And so I've Mm. been getting back into my own healing practices more, my own therapist, massage, more regular movement. So it's, but, but definitely more emotional myself. Yeah. Like you waited, right? You didn't do it when everybody else did it. Cause you wanted to be there for everyone. And now it's hitting you. Yeah. It's sort of been gushing out a bit now and then, but I fortunately have the self-regulation practices that I talk about in the book that help, but yeah, we're all, gosh, we're all on this journey here. Goodness. Yeah. Of trying to figure it out. Yes. So the book, you decide to write the book, The Pleasure is All Yours. And was it cathartic for you? I think there were moments, there were certain passages and chapters that at the time, yes, there would be these little snippets or little bursts of it being cathartic. And and I think it's, I'm glad that you asked that because it's, now that I've been caught up in some of the hustle of marketing and some of the shadow side that's come up with that, mm-hmm. you know, not mm-hmm. maybe people being interested in it, not getting the word out, not getting it to reach where I want it to reach. I've forgotten about some of the more soulful aspects like the uh-huh. cathartic elements. So that is important to remember <laughs> that, you know, even if it's just 
mattered to me, that can be enough. Letting go of sort of that capitalistic mindset that it has to really reach the masses. But my inner perfectionist, I'm a recovering type A and it's really been (laughs) triggered. I've I've relapsed a bit with this book marketing process. But yeah, I think there were definitely moments as I would sit down and write where some nice aha moments or some moments of resolution. I love that. And I, I totally can relate because once you put yourself out there, you know, I did with the podcast, you did with the book, you can't help but put these expectations on it, right? Because you're yeah. like, wow, this is good. This is from my heart. This is the soul. This is my soul. And I know it's important. And you want everyone else to know it's important, but you can't control anything about that. Right. Really? It's a vulnerable. It's a vulnerable. I didn't really think about the vulnerability of it as I was doing it. I just felt right. like you were writing from your soul. That's why mm-hmm. I was doing yeah. the podcast and going with it because it was my second wind. It was my soul pushing me to do it. And then you do, you get caught up in the minutia of, oh, only 400 people listen to that episode or only this many, you know, and it's so easy to start getting down on yourself, which then and I'm sure you've seen this with your clients and with yourself can snowball into a million other things with yes. yourself and bring yes. it to another place. It's like Pema Chodron's famous quote, which is that nothing goes away until it teaches you what you need to know. So mm. obviously I need that what's been coming up for me with, I'll have all these, I might have a bunch of five-star reviews in the book. And then that one three-star review that makes me feel <laughs> crappy. So something here for me to still work on. Um, hasn't gone away yet. So it's something I still need to learn about what yeah. that is triggering in me. Yeah. It's vulnerable. Well, your book should be required reading. I believe for yeah. all young people, I don't, it's not just for women, which I really yeah. want to say, I'm only getting it from my daughters-in-law so that they can somehow uh, through osmosis, get it to their partners and my son's. I don't think my sons will sit down and my son-in-law will sit down with the book and read it, but I know the girls will, the young women will, but men should read this too. Cause you're not really saying this is a woman's issue. And this is a man's issue that I could tell in the book. It's more of a human thing. Exactly. I wanted it to be for all genders and non-binary and for everybody, but let's face it. People who have been socialized as female probably do have a little bit more of a trickier, complicated relationship with some of these topics. But Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways in which, you know, I talk also about how people socialize as male and all how sad it is that they are encouraged to not be emotional and express themselves. So everybody, you know, and then we wonder why relationships are so fraught when (laughs) men are, are raised to disconnect from their emotions, women to disconnect from their bodies. So it, yeah, I see it as being for everybody and my, that's my hope for all beings, all bodies. It's so well said and everything you write in the book is just so meaningful and every single chapter, I mean, a couple of them are interesting titles like (laughs) motion is the lotion and the erotic, erotic pleasure, magnetic intimacy. And I'll tell you what, I'm listening to the book and I'm I said, I probably need to be your client. I'm walking and I'm like, 
I'm getting to the the chapter, the erotic pleasure chapters towards the end. And I'm I'm like, oh, I'm gonna re-listen to this chapter before I go there. I don't know if I'm ready to go to that chapter. Yeah. But it really was fine. And then I went to it and I was like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I try to crazy. have it be also lighthearted and and have some anecdotes and humor and not take ourselves too seriously. But there's, you know, there's also can depending on people's experiences, some of this stuff can be a bit much. But it's important to learn it. It's mm-hmm. important to you don't know what you don't know. So you gotta know. Gotta have the information. So it's been super helpful for me so far. And you are still creating your next wind. Do you want to share? Yes. Well. I'm what I'm really branching into now is I'm going to create some online curriculum. So to help other people learn other clinicians to learn about bodyfulness, to bring that in with their students and their clients, also some online curriculum around the book, as well as for people who just want to learn more about bodyfulness. And I'm in the process of working with a business strategist to really create a bodyfulness movement. I guess I haven't really explained that much so far what body, how to define bodyfulness. Yeah, let's let's go there because I had asked you in the beginning, I said, did you come up with this term bodyfulness? Because there was mindfulness and you're like, well, it's not just about your mind. It's the mind-body connection. And you gave me a very interesting answer to that. Whether I came up with the word. Yeah. Yeah. I had been using it for a while. I, you know, mindfulness is pretty ubiquitous right now and has been picking up steam for a while. And I just thought that, you know, our language really mirrors what we value in a Mm. culture. And so even mindfulness using the word mind still, once again, sort of leaves up the body. Sure. There can be mindfulness on noticing the body, but it really stops there. We don't really go beyond with movement and release and some of these you know, just more vigorous um, and dynamic ways, as I, I say that bodyfulness is mindfulness unleashed. So mm-hmm. I started using the word bodyfulness as I was really putting together what it meant for me and why I thought it was important. And I did my TEDx talk on it really, again, similar to the book, bodyfulness is also a path to reclaiming healthy pleasures. And then around that time, I noticed there was a woman, Christine Caldwell, who wrote a book called Bodyfulness. And she, I heard her in a podcast say, well, she didn't, she thought started using the word, but she didn't really make it up either. I guess apparently it's just dabbled here and there. Some people have been using it, but it hasn't really, it's just starting to also pick up steam. It hasn't really stuck in the way mindfulness has, but yeah, we're onto something here where the bodyfulness movement is it maybe not in my lifetime, but we'll, we'll be getting there. Oh, I'd like it to be in your lifetime. I think it's necessary. I think we're on the precipice of that, or we need to be for sure. And I would like to think this just popped into my head that, you know, the universe, creator, energy, whatever you want to call it, place that word in certain people's minds to Mm -hmm. share. Because if they had placed it in my mind, it probably would not have gotten very far. But place it in your mind, you're going to start a whole movement. That's what, yeah. So that's my second wind. Well, professionally and personally, because my work is really both, but it really is about having a collective. I want to have a lot of events and trainings Mm. for people and probably starting with women, especially around sexual health with going from really puberty through menopause. 
these things that are not talked about that leave girls and women confused or uncertain or ashamed or you know wanting to undo or change or fight against and really have both movement events and educational events where people can be learning about their bodies, having fun in their bodies, expressing their bodies, really friending their bodies, but understanding some of these aspects of reproductive health, sexual health, relational health, and their emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. that we tend to not teach at all in school. We don't get emotions one-on-one or communication schools one-on-one in elementary school (laughs) that I know know how to manage money. We don't learn how to balance a checkbook. We have no idea about relationships and or sex, Mm -hmm. right? And these are the things that kill marriages. Those can be hot button issues. Yes. And that's what we need. And I love that you're giving another resource, a resource that's so needed for women to turn to. So I want you to keep going (laughs) and keep do all these things. I'll sign up, sign me up. I do everything by the way. So if you come (laughs) onto the podcast and you do something, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do that. And I try and do all that comes to me because there's got to be a reason for it. Well, I'm going to sign up for all this stuff as soon as you get I love it. Absolutely. You're curious. You're open-minded. I like that. Why not? Why not? What do we have to lose? It's only going to make things better. Yeah. Curiosity. I'd love that that about you. Well, thanks. Thanks. But (laughs) it's really from doing this podcast and meeting people like you that bring forth all this information that makes me yearn for more, eager to hear more. Like, oh gosh, I want to talk to this person. I want to talk to this person. And it's like, they have so many cool things to say. So I really appreciate that. I think it's great though, that you're shining a lens and and wanting to really amplify voices that you feel have important messages uh, along people's healing life journey. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Being the little girl on the little farm in the little cabin, trying to do a little podcast. (laughs) (laughs) and not have a lot of expectations. Somebody said, well, why did you want, you know, this many numbers of downloads in a year? And I thought about you and in the book and, and I'm like, I don't know why I said that. I just thought the number was a good number. Right. And you think after four months, you'd like your books will explode. I'm telling you, it's going to explode. It needs to be required reading, especially in college. I mean, that might be a good place for people to really, that age group to really grasp the information and really be able to ponder it and think about it reflectively. I think it needs to be required reading. I really think so. Thank you. Yeah. Gosh, I got to figure out how to tap into that. (laughs) If I have anybody on my podcast that can do that, I will send them your way. Mm -hmm. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk more specifically about the book and about sexual health and what you're seeing, especially for women in relationships Mm -hmm. as they enter into their second wind and and things that can hang us up or help us um, in our February series. I do have a couple questions for you before we have our fabulous time together. And I'm so grateful for you for making this time for second wind. If you had a saying or a mantra that you tell yourself every day? Because every day, I mean, to be honest, there are days when you wake up maybe and you're like, I have this, this, and this to do. And I just don't really want to. How do you keep yourself going and moving forward and staying positive and healthy? I have a handful of different ones that rotate through a little carousel. Bring them on. Depending on the day. I mean, sometimes I have my phases where it's just a mantra of 
of work hard and be kind. Just try to not. I do love quotes and especially ones from more like Japanese proverbs and that sort of thing. Mm. So when I, sometimes when I just need motivation, I've had uh, the mantra or quote of fall seven times, stand up eight, just that sort of stand back up. Oh yeah. Showing up. And another beautiful one, sometimes when I've dealt with dealing with loss is, I think this is a Chinese proverb of I've lost. No, it's I, I have what I have and I'm happy. I've lost what I've lost and I'm still happy. So sort of this place of acceptance and removal of sort of the things and the stuff and like, how can we still, whether it be literally happiness or just find peace in the fact that there's that throughout our lives, we do have loss, whether it be of a person or a sense of self or who we thought we were or who we thought someone else to be or, but how to still feel happiness within the loss. I love all that. That is all good stuff right there. And what do you do to release when something goes sideways for you? You know, I am a releaser by nature. I actually probably need to practice some containment sometimes, really, <laughs> because that's part of what I talk I about. So much releasing today. Yeah, bodyfulness. <laughs> it's there are times you need to discharge and release, and times when it's about finding containment. And by containment, really, it's about finding yeah. grounding and centering to stabilize emotions as opposed to contain, keep it in, keep it in, in a repressed or suppressed sort of way. So it's not containment in that way, but I'm naturally very expressive, but physical movement is a big thing for me in, you know, stretching, running, being outside, balancing it between more intentional sort of sensual movement practices and things that are more vigorous. That's sort of a non-negotiable for me. And, but also just social connection, just big sort of self or co-regulation rather for me too. Mm-hmm. We need people. Yeah. We're packed, packed people. Quality relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. I am so excited to talk to you again because there's, there's way more to talk about. Yes. We'll get into more of the pleasure, how I talk about the different types of pleasure and how pleasure is healing and really reclaiming that concept because it's such a regenerative life force energy that sadly had been demonized and pathologized in our puritanical roots. So yeah, we can talk more about pleasure and applying that to after 50 and really owning and receiving the pleasures that you deserve as a human. And the word joy. Yes. Right now we're speaking right before the holidays and you know I'm driving by houses that have the signs joy and I'm like, ah, oh, but do you really know what that means? <laughs> do you really know and do you really have joy? I'm looking at that word completely differently after hearing your book for almost two times. Yeah. It's the moments of pleasure that add up to the longer lasting states of joy or happiness. So I think that to say pleasure is bad or lavish. Well, how do we get to joy if we don't allow ourselves these healthy pleasure practices and to receive that and to share in that with others? So, yeah. Thank you so much. Pleasure to the people. Pleasure (laughs) to the people. Yes. And Go on to Dr. Rachel Allen's website and you can listen to her YouTube talk, her, I mean, her TEDx talk. It's good. It's a good one. Lots of things on her website and it's spelled A-L-L-Y-N. Yep. And get the book. Audible's great. I listen to it when I'm walking or driving Yeah. and the book is called The Pleasure is All Yours. Is there yeah. an outlet where they should you prefer people to get the book? Is there a better place than others? Whatever works for them. I'm 
My publisher, so Shambhala, it's Penguin Random House is the distributor for us. And so that that's, I guess, ideally go to Penguin Random House and get it through them or through Shambhala publications. But you know what? People are messaging me all the time. I just saw it in Barnes & Noble and Target, you know, obviously Amazon. So it's- You're in all those places. Kindle, there's the Kindle and the and the Audible. I do that more and more myself. I do a lot of listening. Well, it's not my voice. It's a woman, wonderful uh, voice of a woman named Kaliswa, who is actually uh, an actress and a Broadway actress. And so she does a great job. But I still said during our pre-interview, well, I love your voice. Why didn't you? I know. Do it? <laughs> Thank you. Next book. Maybe uh, the next one. Maybe your next book. Because you're already the wheels are already turning for that. Yeah. Yeah. It might be another five years till it's out, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Rachel. Until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.